0: A couple weeks ago, we started with the book of Mark's introduction. Every time we open a book of the Bible, we want to make sure that we look at very important factors like who wrote it, who did they write it to, what was the context or the historical context, and also things that are important. How did the original readers understand this? Because we are 2,000 years or more removed from when this was written. And so we have to understand things like this. We may not understand every nuance and detail, but there are things that help us to grasp the truth of God's word. And so I started with an introduction and the first eight verses. And we met a man named John the Baptizer who is a rugged and remarkable character. The Bible gives us details about what he wore. It gives us details about what he ate. He ate locusts and wild honey. It's very funny. And we know that he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. This was an unconventional baptism. It says thousands of people were coming out to see this remarkable sight of this man preaching with no amplification, doing an unconventional baptism in the Jordan River. This was not normal. This was outside of the box in every way. And we have Jewish people that were coming and we have Gentiles that were coming as well. We can imagine the religious leaders and rulers were on the bank of the Jordan River wondering if this was a rebellion of some kind. And we also have Roman soldiers that were sent by Roman authorities to see if this was some kind of revolution and political upheaval. They were all curious as to what was happening, but then there were hungry hearts, weren't there? There were those that were hungry that wanted to come close to God. They wanted to know that what he was preaching was real. They, want, they wanted to have a relationship with God. God's people were longing for years and years for him to be made known to them in a very real way. And so while they heard John the Baptist, they were streaming into the Jordan River and confessing their sins publicly. Can you imagine that? Confessing their sins out loud in front of everybody, making a decision, I don't care who hears me, I wanna be right with God. And as they were doing that, John was baptizing them one after another, and this was a marvelous sight. You could say that there there was a great revival happening in Israel at this time. That would be a way of saying it. There was a great awakening that was transpiring. And just picture how the scene would be electric with anticipation. Who wouldn't be feeling something? You know, everybody in the audience, whether they were in the waters or, or like this on the shore, there was a sense in which something great was happening. Something powerful, something otherly, otherworldly, so to speak, we, we, you couldn't quite grasp it, you wouldn't be able to articulate it. Here you have this man baptizing and they're wondering what is coming next. And what I love about the five verses, that's right, five verses that we're studying today, is we have a revelation of the ministry of Jesus. We looked at John the Baptist who was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And now we read about Jesus coming forward here in these five verses. And this is where we start in verse nine. It says this, "'In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, "'and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. "'Immediately coming up out of the water, "'he saw the heavens opening.'" And that's what we're calling this message today, "'The heavens opened.'" "'He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit "'like a dove descending upon him. "'And a voice came out of the heavens, "'You are my beloved Son.'" In you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him or compelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this is a summary of all that happened. I love how Mark can summarize what others will take a chapter to detail. He'll take five verses to summarize three very significant events. We can read about them in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew. In the book of John, it only talks about Jesus' baptism as John the Baptist reflects on it, which I'll bring up today. But it's important for us to know that the baptism of Jesus, at least, is in all three of the other gospel accounts. And it will fill in detail for us, and I'll try to bring out what I think is important during our study today. But let's focus on these three events as we're looking at this and walk through it together. The first one is that Jesus was baptized. We know, and I've already said, thousands of people were coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, and this was a form of repentance. We know they were being baptized, it says, for the forgiveness of their sins. Later on, we would understand water baptism in even greater detail, but it says specifically for the forgiveness of their sins. It was a sort of cleansing, and they knew this. It was to prepare them for the Messiah, for which they all were waiting and wondering when he would show up. So why was Jesus baptized? That is the question we have to answer. Because Jesus did not need repentance, Jesus did not sin. So if Jesus was sinless, which we believe, and he was in no need of repentance, why would he be baptized? Well, we first must say that this was no ordinary baptism because this was no ordinary man. This was not just a regular person here that was in the waters. When we look at Matthew's account, we see something very interesting. I think it's chapter three and verse 15. John the Baptist, when Jesus comes into the waters, John refuses to baptize Jesus. And he specifically says, I should be baptized by you. He was hesitant. I do not want to do this. Remember something very important though. John was Jesus's natural cousin. So they knew each other. This was no like uh, instance where he had some discernment. And I think it's important for us to recognize something that I don't think we always, that we always remember when we're reading about something like the baptism of Jesus. And that is that John the Baptist did not know that Jesus was the Messiah of God until he came up out of the water and the Spirit of God came upon him. So when when John was hesitant to baptize Jesus, it was not because he knew he was the Messiah. And I wanna bring that up and, and hopefully help us understand this a little bit because sometimes people will take these accounts, blend them together, and see them as a contradiction. But when you begin to walk through them, you, you realize there's no contradiction here at all. There is an answer for this. But let me read to you in John chapter one and verse 29. This is the recalling of John the Baptist of the baptism of Jesus. And here's what it says. The next day he, which is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming out to him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has higher rank than I for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. This is John speaking. I did not recognize him as as who he was. But so that He might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and the Spirit remained upon Jesus. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, think through this really, really quickly with me. John is now recalling after Jesus' baptism in John chapter 1 that he did not recognize Jesus when he came into the waters. He's his natural cousin. He didn't recognize him as the Messiah, did not know that's who he was. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came upon him. Why is that important? Well, I'm gonna tell you why. Look here in Matthew chapter three and verse 13. This is the other account in Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him. And this is what John said to Jesus. They're standing in the waters, picture them. He said, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him and said this, Permitted at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is a very important statement. Now, I want to bring this up because John was Jesus's cousin, as I've said, but it was clear from natural knowledge, and and think about this, they didn't grow up exactly in the same place, but they grew up together in a way. They would interact. They had transaction. So they knew each other growing up. And this suggests, and I think it's a very powerful notion for us to consider, that John knew Jesus by the flesh and what he knew by the flesh was enough for him to resist wanting to baptize him. And this means that the sinless life of Jesus, although people did not know he was the Messiah, they knew there was something special about him that was otherly and that was different. John, by the flesh, knew that there was something special about Jesus, but he didn't know he was the Messiah until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And that's significant when you consider that Jesus as a man, he is more than a man, but even as a man, that those that were around him watching the life that he lived knew that he was more than just a man. So much so that John the Baptist would resist. I am not supposed to be baptizing you. You're better than me. Think about that for a moment. That's very powerful. But Jesus responds to him and he says, John permitted at this time for in this way, doing this, is fitting for us, and we must do it to fulfill all righteousness. Well, let me take you through a few other passages that will help make sense. 1 Peter 2, 24. It says that Jesus came to bear our sins in the body. I wanna tell you today, that started before the cross. When Jesus was standing in these baptism waters, it was a commitment to the payment that was forthcoming that we read about on the cross. So many times we focus on the cross and the resurrection and we must, but that was the conclusion of Jesus's mission. But it started far before that, when Jesus was standing in the baptism waters and he was saying, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. He was saying something very powerful that accompanies what he was doing at the cross. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin To be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Come on, if you're not smiling today, you should. I just wanna encourage you to just lift it a little bit. You ought to. This is for you and this is for me. The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to become sin so that you and I, average, normal, sinful people, might become the righteousness of God. The only hope that we have for righteousness in this life is to acquire it through our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you and I have any righteousness whatsoever. So what does that have to do with Jesus being baptized? Well, there are three reasons I see that Jesus was baptized, and they all relate to us. The first one is that Jesus was in those waters identifying with humanity. Jesus was not baptized for himself. He was baptized for us. He was standing in the waters on behalf of humanity, just like when he was on the cross, he was dying for every person on the planet. He was taking on our sins. He did not need to repent. He did not need the forgiveness of sins. He was standing in the water and he allowed a man, he allowed his cousin to baptize him. And he did that for you and for me. Jesus was committing himself also to us. Baptism represents death and life. Jesus would ultimately go to the cross three years later and he would die and he would rise again. We know this is what it represents. And so he's committing himself to the payment. We all owe a debt that we cannot pay. Amen. But there is one that paid it on our behalf. And Jesus is making that commitment to that payment in death and in life. And this is what it says to us Number three, Jesus was an example for us because all of his followers, which we're doing next week and we do every month or every other month, that we also offer an opportunity for people to step into baptism waters, which represent that we die to ourself And we died with him, as he died, we are dying in him, and we are being raised to new life. That is not just uh, in this life, but is that we have eternal life. Jesus is life. And so this is not only a representation, this is a reality. We will die, and we will rise again. So when we stand in baptism waters, we are identifying with Christ. How many of you know all over the world, when you make a decision to follow Jesus, you go into the baptism waters and you are forsaking your old life. And in many instances, you are actually being ostracized from your family. You are being cut off from that which you knew, that which your family's committed to, false gods, other religions. You're making a decision to fully identify with Jesus Christ when you go into the baptism waters. Friends, this helps us to understand that baptism is no mere ritual. Baptism is powerful before all principalities and powers and before all people. It is an identification with Christ. And when Jesus stood in the waters, he was identifying with us. And now when we stand in the waters, we are identifying with him him aren't you grateful that Jesus humbled himself in such a way as a perfect example for you and for me isn't this a beautiful picture of our savior willing to go at every detail for you and I this is incredible Jesus was baptized when you read the baptism of Jesus don't skip over it like it's not a big deal it's a massive deal for him to stand in those waters. The second thing we read about in in this passage in verse 10 is Jesus was empowered. Another way of saying it is that Jesus was anointed. Here's what it says in verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove, not a dove, but the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Notice verse 10. It says, the heavens, this word, opened. This is a more significant term than we might realize. There are a couple words in Greek, the original language of the New Testament, and there's a little Aramaic in the New Testament as well, but there's a couple words that you can use for the word open. They're very simple. They're very technical terms. You could say, and it opened. This word is the word schizo. It's where we get the word schizophrenic. It's, in other words, like it. The word schizo means torn apart. It doesn't just mean opened. It means torn apart. And you can understand how powerful this is. It's almost like a violent word. The heavens were torn asunder. That's the way King James would say. Don't you guys like a little King James once in a while? (laughs) Torn asunder. You just go back to Macbeth and all. All right, anyhow, you you would like it for me to show up one day and just do a whole King James, wouldn't you? Yeah, some, some of you really love the King James. I know, I know. I, I, do, I choose not to read it as over 400 archaic words that are no longer in our dictionary. That's just the beginning of why I don't. But I know we love it. Amen, I know we, I know we love it. Anyhow, this word is so powerful because it has significance not only in the past but also in the future. The Jewish people were longing for God to come down. And we know this in Isaiah chapter 64. Listen to what it says here in the prophet Isaiah, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would tear open the heavens and that you would come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. See, God's people longed for God to come down, that the heavens would open. And guess what? God came down in Jesus Christ. There is significance also that this is at the Jordan River. What else took place at the Jordan River? Many, many other things. We see people like Joshua and Elijah and Elisha who had powerful moments at the Jordan River where the Jordan River parted. The Jordan River was torn open so that people could walk across on dry ground. Many other things in scripture were torn open is to help us understand this word a little bit more. In Matthew 27, 51, it says that Jesus breathed his last and after he did, there was a shaking that happened on the earth. And guess what was torn from top to bottom? It says that the veil, the veil was that, that, that thick veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place in the temple. Nobody could go into the Holy of Holies unless they were a priest once a year under great fear that they might die and do it the wrong way. Only once a year could it even happen. And there's this thick veil that separates, really separates people from the manifest presence of the Lord. And it says the veil was rent, it was ripped, it was schizo, it was torn apart from top to bottom. Friends, I'm just trying to point out something here that at Jesus' baptism, it says the heavens were torn apart and God never zipped them back up. You understand what I'm saying? The heavens were torn open and God isn't stitching it back together. There was something powerful that happened that day that we continue to read about as Jesus accomplishes the mission for which he was sent. We see that the heavens were open and the spirit came upon him and it remained on him. Jesus was empowered. Before this moment, Jesus never did a miracle. Before this, Jesus never preached the kingdom. Before this, Jesus never healed the sick. He never raised the dead. He didn't do any of those things. But after this and after his anointing, after his empowerment, he was sent on mission to accomplish everything that he was sent to do. And it says this in Luke chapter four and verse 17, it tells us what he was here to do. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. You remember when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he comes into the synagogue, as they're gathered together, the attendant hands him the scroll. He finds where it says this in Isaiah, and he reads this out loud. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, that happened in the baptism. That's what he's talking about. That was fulfilled, that happened. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant. I I don't know how this happened, but I can imagine he just sort of rolls it up and he just passes it over (laughs) casually. And he says this, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was anointed and then he began his ministry going into the wilderness after this, which we'll talk about in a second. I I wanna bring up a point though, and I think this is really important for for two different reasons and probably more. We know that when we focus on the anointing and the empowerment of Jesus, we are a Pentecostal church and and some would call it charismatic. And what, what that means to me is not what some people think. Um, I I used to avoid the word because I didn't know what everybody meant when you said it, but now I don't avoid the word anymore because I I want people to be sure of what kind of a church we are, not as a badge of honor, but as a point of distinction so that we understand, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in the fullness of the Spirit. We believe that as Jesus was anointed with power, that the Holy Spirit anoints us to continue the mission and the ministry that Jesus began. That as we look at the book of Acts, we, we don't just see Jesus, we see mere men, Men and women anointed, empowered by the Spirit to do what Jesus did for for the name of Jesus, for the glory of Christ. This is what it's about. We we need the Holy Spirit today, and we, we believe that as a church. But I think sometimes in our pursuing of the power of the Spirit or the ministry of Christ, we can minimize Jesus. And I often get a little concerned about that when I hear people make comments, because you cannot minimize Christ. We are a people that must uphold the supremacy of Jesus. Yes, we believe that God wants to empower us. Yes, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Yes, we believe that God wants to heal and God wants to deliver. And and of course, he wants to save. That is the ministry of Christ. And he wants to use his body to do that. But friends, we cannot pursue that and minimize Christ. We pursue that in the name of Jesus, but we are not Jesus. We are the body of Christ. He is the head and we are the body. And occasionally, I'll I'll hear well-meaning people make comments that make me cringe, I'll be honest with you today? I don't cringe all the time, but I cringe sometimes. If you look over and you see me cringe, there's a reason. Or it might be cold in the building too. That does happen here occasionally. A coat is nice today. This blows in. I don't know how it happens, but I hear people say things like, Jesus laid aside his divinity. I want you to listen to that. Jesus laid aside his deity. If you ever hear somebody say that, look at them and give them that strange you know, theological look. That is such an inaccurate statement. Pastor Ben, you're being picky. If we're gonna be picky, let's be picky about Jesus. Okay, there's some things we need to be picky about. You might differ with me about a lot of things. That's fine, you be picky, I'll be picky. But let's not differ about our savior. Let's not differ about God the son. Let's not differ about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, and his supremacy being upheld by the church of Jesus Christ. Let's not differ. So when anybody says that he laid aside his divinity and his deity, prove that in the Bible. He never laid aside his deity. And when I hear people say that, I go, oh my gosh, you well-meaning, hopefully you're well-meaning, you well-meaning misguided person. (laughs) Because this is something holy to us as Christians, as followers of Christ. We can't, in our whimsical words, Throw aside things casually. Look what it says in Philippians 2, because this is where people get that idea. Paul's talking to the church at Philippi, and he says this about Christ. He said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen very carefully. Who, although he existed in the form of God, okay, if you're not sure about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three and one, one and three, Jesus is God the Son. If you're not sure about that, I don't know what you do with this verse, or many like it. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But listen, but he emptied himself. That does not mean he laid aside his deity. He did not say, well, I'm not God now. That's not what this means. He emptied himself himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What does emptied himself mean? It does not mean he stopped being God the son. It means that he laid aside the independent use of his divine power as God. He laid aside his independent use of the divine power that he had. Jesus said to Pilate, you remember this comment that he makes, Pilate's asking him, are you who people say you're saying you are? And Jesus at some point makes this comment to him, I could call a thousand angels right now. I don't know what, I, I, I got this picture in my mind like Pilate's bone shook. <laughs> Jesus said, I could call a le- is there anybody in this room that can call a legion of angels? I hope you don't try because they ain't coming at your command. Jesus looks at a man and he says, I have the power to call legion of angels. Well, I never woke up in the morning thinking that about myself. Jesus made a choice to lay aside his independent use of his divine power, but he never stopped being God. He is fully God and he became fully man for us. And what he did while he was standing in the waters is he solely relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon him to exercise that power. That is what he did, but it is not what he had to do. It is what he chose to do. And so we have to be very careful as we pursue the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are not Jesus Christ. And sometimes people teach in such a way where we can just walk around and we're, we're just little Jesuses. We are representations of Jesus. We are the body of Christ, he is Christ. We've gotta be very, very careful in the language that we use, and I, I get concerned, particularly for the charismatic Pentecostal church, that they say things that are so woefully inaccurate that it makes us look like we do not even understand these kinds of things. So please, please be very careful with that language. And another thing that I would say to you why this is important, because the world, think about this, the world, minimizes Jesus. The world minimizes Jesus. The church cannot minimize Jesus. There has to be something of worship where we see him so high and exalted that when we say we can be like him, let's make sure we understand what that means. That it does not mean we are him. When we say we can be like him, that's in a smaller form. Friends, that is in a smaller form. None of us walk around like Jesus did, not one of us. I've never seen, I mean, I know a lot of you And I'm telling you the truth today. (laughs) But the world wants to hear Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad and everybody else, you know? There are some cults that believe Jesus and Satan are brothers, you know? Just trying to minimize Jesus. And I think sometimes we don't mean to, but in the church we can do the same thing in, in, in an indirect way. And we have to be so careful because we come to worship Jesus. We come to acknowledge his power and his glory. We see pictures of Jesus in Revelation where when John, who was with him for three years, encounters him and Jesus had to wake him up because all of a sudden he's, though he was dead on the ground, I don't think anybody's gonna walk into heaven and go, yep, high five, just like you. You know, I don't think that's gonna happen. You know, that was not how I meant it to be. You understand what I'm saying? The supremacy of Christ is before us. Very, very important. Does not, I'm not minimizing the fact that we need to walk in power. I'm just saying, as we do that, we make much of him, and we follow him in, as he's allowed us to. Jesus was anointed for ministry, and we see this serves also as an example for us, which is the choice that he made so that we could follow him in this way. The third and final event that takes place in these verses is Jesus was tempted. Verse 12 and 13, it says, "'Immediately the Spirit compelled him, "'impelled him to go out into the wilderness, And he was in the wilderness, 40 days, being tempted by Satan. In Matthew's gospel account of this, it's half a chapter, and it shows three specific temptations that Jesus faces with the enemy. Some would say that in Mark's gospel here, it says, for 40 days he was being tempted. That could mean that there were many more temptations, That could mean that Jesus was tempted every day. We don't really know. We only know that there are three specific ones that are referenced in the other gospel account. But there are many scholars that think he was tempted a lot, a lot more than that, and when the devil left, he left for an opportune time. But it goes on to say he was with wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now, Jesus was led into the wilderness. This was not random, this was necessary. Jesus was led into the wilderness. As we have seen before, he continues to stand in for humanity to accomplish something on our behalf. What is this about? In the garden, Adam and Eve in Genesis three failed, and Jesus now is heading into the wilderness and he does not fail. Where we failed as human beings, Adam and Eve, our first parents, where we failed, Jesus did not. He goes into the wilderness, and I want to say the first thing that Jesus does when he has the power of the Spirit is confront the devil. What if God wants to give us power to overcome the sins in our life just as much he wants to give us power to do signs, wonders, and miracles? I mean, once again, I feel like people are always chasing the power to have some kind of miracle happen, and we we want that, but what if we need that same power to overcome sin in our lives? And Jesus, the first thing he does after being anointed is he takes back the authority which we gave to the devil in Genesis chapter three. We listened to the stranger's voice for far too long and as we did that, he usurped a place in our life that he does not deserve and Jesus confronts him. These temptations come and he overcomes. So he was led into the wilderness not to be tempted. He was tempted, but he was led into the wilderness to overcome. That's why he was led into the, the the Holy Spirit does not lead us into temptation. The Bible is very clear of that, right? We're even praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. This is what it says in scripture. God does not lead us into temptation, but that does not mean that he doesn't allow for temptation to come. It just doesn't come from his hand. It came from the enemy, but the Holy Spirit led him into a place where he was going to have to confront this temptation. Our faith in Christ causes us to receive the victory that Christ gained for us. Can I tell you today that you and I are not victorious in and of ourselves. We are victorious because Christ stood in our place and he took back the authority that we gave over from the enemy. When we say that we're victorious, we are saying in Christ. When we're saying that we have the victory, it is because of what Christ did. When we're saying that we have power, it's because of Jesus Christ. This is what the body of Christ is saying. And we're thankful that Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days, and he was tempted, and he overcame each and every one of them. Well, I want to close today by just sharing with you three very quick, simple, applicational points. The first one is this. We must identify with the person of Jesus. I'm talking to us. We must identify with the person of Jesus. As I've already said, Jesus identified with us in baptism waters. He took our place. Jesus stood there for us. I I wanna tell you today, he's already stood for us. The question is not, does Jesus love us? The question is not, is Jesus for us? The question is, will we stand for Jesus? The question is not, about him, the question is now for us. It is for us to answer. He stood for us in those baptism waters. Now will we stand for him? Identifying with Christ means that we surrender our lives and following Jesus means nothing less than that. I know that we're living in a time where the waters have been muddied and we're living in a couple year period where things have brought on fatigue. I don't know if PTSD is the right word to, to use in all of this, but I don't mean it clinically, I mean it practically. I, I've, I've been to the, a couple churches in the last uh, few months and I went to the previous church Bridget and I were at and then I went to another church in, in Idaho to visit a friend that I, I had put off for a couple years. And I don't plan to do a, a whole lot of that right now, but I want to tell you that it's the same in most churches. I would tell you there is something great happening underneath the surface. There is a revival stirring. There, there is a movement happening. God is using this season that we've come out of and he's stirring something in his people to make full commitments to Christ and nothing less. He is drawn a line in the sand and he's saying casual Christianity will not last. Having a casual relationship with Jesus will not last any more than having a casual relationship with your spouse will be something that you look forward to. I mean, some of us know what it's like to not want to go home. I think that's what sometimes it's like when you have a casual relationship with God. You don't want to go to church. You don't want to hang out with Christians. You don't want to open the Bible. You don't want to be around anything that reminds you of God. And we can blame other people. We, we do that in a lot of, there's, we're full of a generation that wants to blame the church and not look in the mirror. And I, I will tell you, the only freedom that comes is when we look in the mirror and we repent. We can't control the actions of other people and God knows that. You know that, we know that. I can't change you and you can't change me. I can't accommodate myself by controlling how you live your life. I've tried to do that with children, it hasn't worked. <laughs> I tried to control their hearts and their minds. It has not worked. If you've got the formula for that, please do share but what we can change is our own lives. And the Bible calls us to such a full surrender. And on the other end of that surrender, it tells us that this is the best life and the blessed life. It has nothing to do with material possessions. It has everything to do with relationship with Christ. It has to do with knowing him and loving him and being with him and making much of him and sharing about him. And this is the life that is worth living. We are called to identify with Christ. When we read about the baptism of Jesus, and we read about his anointing and his empowerment, and we read about him overcoming the devil. Man, this should make our hands go up in worship. We are worshiping a savior that did all on our behalf so that we could have the benefits. And there is everything to be excited about when we think about Christ. Why would we not identify with him in every way that we possibly can? This invitation is not some casual thing. It's the invitation of the ages to know God, that he came down, that the heavens were opened, and God came down in Jesus Christ saying, I love you, I love you, and he bids us to come. This is the invitation of Christ. I was thinking earlier, um, I apologize for random things coming to my mind. I don't know if it's a blessing or a burden to you, but for whatever reason, I was drawn to this idea in worship. And it was that I was looking at the ad in Costco. I, I, I should earn money for how often I bring up Costco. I, <laughs> or Amazon or Chick-fil-A or whatever. I, I apologize if it's offensive. I, um, I just shop at Costco. It is what it is. So, But I was looking at the ad in Costco, just trying to check out the deals. I'm, we're all deal people, okay? And uh, if it's not on sale, I'm not buying kind of thing. And so I'm looking through that. And I don't know how many times I counted something that was sort of like an anti-aging product. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I'm drawn to the one to regrow hair. I'm not trying to say that to you today. But I just, it was like one after another. It was like all the, you know, excuse me, women, but it was all the makeup products, you know, to co- we want to cover up all the wrinkles. And you do you, you know, it's, it's no, no judgment. You do you, but... But then it was like, let's regrow our hair and you know go back to our 20s or 30s or for some of us, teenage years. It was, a, it was just time and time again. It was like one thing after another. It was like, I wanna cover up the fact that I'm aging. I mean, and seriously, like knock yourself out. If that's your thing, I'm not judging. I'm just, I, I just kept, it was so strange. Like in one Costco ad, it was again and again and again. We're trying to cover up this aging thing that's going on. Paul would call it, we're decaying outwardly but inwardly as Christians were being renewed day by day. And I was just sort of struck and I was thinking about it in worship randomly. And I thought, isn't that what happens is we want to stop the fact that we are are dying outwardly. There is only one sure deal to not die. And it's not a product that you can buy. It's an invitation that you can respond to. There's only one way to cheat death. It's already been cheated. You can't earn it, and you don't deserve it. There's one way, and Costco doesn't have it. I'll tell you something today. Costco doesn't have it. Jesus has it. And he offers it free, doesn't he? Oh, you're clapping at my random stuff. I love you. I love you. Thank you, Lord. Come on. There's only one way. And And I want to tell you today that what... If you don't know Jesus, and I know a lot of you in the room, but if you don't, we're, pastors are up here after the service. Come and come on down and identify with Christ. Make the decision. Make the decision that I made, and many of us made. I made it 22 years ago, and I wasn't playing games with God. I wanted everything that he had. I have not, I've never been a perfect person, but I follow a perfect one. And that's what following Jesus is, is all about. We identify with Christ. The second is we need to receive the power of Jesus. Jesus was anointed with power and he invites us to receive of the same spirit. Trying to follow Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit is just a futile proposition. You cannot read the Bible and think for a second that we can accomplish this in our own strength. There is no way it can happen. And so we must know that there is power available to live the life that God has destined for us and it is available through the person of the Holy Spirit. We need the anointing to accomplish Jesus's mission. Not, not to be casual, not to be religious people. The Bible talks about there will be in the last days a form of religion that denies the power, denies the power of change and transformation. No, nobody wants to be a casual Christian, it happens by default. And we're not talking about you be like me and I be like you and whatever, whoever the stand, Jesus is the standard, not one of us is but we follow him with all passion to become like him. And there's nothing less in our view but to be like the one we're following, amen. But there is power available. Leonard Ravenhill said in one of his books, everyone wants to be clothed with power, but nobody wants to be emptied of self. And the reality is if we want the power of God in our lives, we have to empty ourselves. And we do that through surrender, which we've already shared. And let me close with this. We must recognize the path of Jesus. I, I just wanna tell you today that when we look at Jesus overcoming the devil, it's amazing to me how he gets anointed with the spirit and the first thing he does is go into the wilderness. I think sometimes we've got to recognize that spiritual highs are followed by these confrontations with the flesh, these confrontations with the devil. I can't tell you how many people I've baptized just to see them fall off following Christ right after. And we pray over them diligently. Lord, we pray that you would keep them, preserve them, but sometimes they're not prepared for what's about to happen. And I I want you to know that God is doing something great in our times. When we talk about revival and we talk about awakening, I'm not talking about exciting meetings. I really believe that God is restoring marriages. God is restoring homes. God is raising up children to be a holy generation. They are being confronted with a holy God. There is something great happening today, but I would tell you we need to be on guard because we will move from a spiritual high to a spiritual low. And maybe you've encountered that. Maybe you're somebody that says, Pastor Ben, today, I feel like I did all that, man. I surrendered to God. I followed Jesus. I gave him more and not less. I took steps like you're saying. I came down and I gave my life to him and I followed him. I got baptized and all I got was trial after trial after trial. This just doesn't seem like what you're talking about, friend, it is. The reason that the devil wants to stop us or the reason that our flesh wants to slow us down is because there's something great on the other end. And the spiritual breakthrough is not always just about receiving the anointing. It's about receiving the anointing to confront the things of the past. And as we move through that, all that is available, which we didn't know about and didn't walk in is now where we're living. And that's what God had for us. He wants us to go through these wildernesses. And I, I'm not suggesting that we can't do it with joy and with peace. We do it with Christ. We do it in Christ. He's already overcome on our behalf. But I, I want you to not be disillusioned when you face trials of many kinds. God does not overpromise and underdeliver. He gives us all that we need to face everything that happens. Sometimes in, in, our, in our, the Pentecostal church, at least, we think having authority over the enemy means that we don't have to face him. I've watched it. We just, oh, we take authority over the enemy. And then you go home. And then you're disillusioned. Like, what happened? Well, you start, you hit a bee's nest is what you did. (laughs) What happens when you punch a hornet's nest? Which I may or may not have done recently. What happens? You got to face what comes. But how do you face what comes? In Christ. How do you face in victory, what comes next? You face it in the power of Christ. That's why we need the power of Christ. Don't you find it interesting? The first thing Jesus did was confront the temptation. It wasn't do the miracle. It was confront the temptation. That was the first breakthrough that he had. And I would tell you today, that's what's happening. When David, when David was anointed king and he faced Goliath, some of you know the story quite well there's this, these verses, these small verses in the Bible that tell us something about David that before he stood before Goliath, it said that he was protecting his father's sheep and there was a bear and there was a lion that he had to overcome. And he did this when no one was looking. Nobody knew. I mean, can you imagine even trying to go up against a bear? What a horrible proposition that is. I think not. I've been to the zoo. I think no, no. You know, not even the lazy ones, you know, not even the, you know, I'm not interested in playing with that guy. I don't want Aslan. I don't want any of them. You know, you know, I'm serious. This is re- It says David, David overcame the bear and he overcame the lion, but he was protecting his father's sheep. He didn't do it because he was trying to be a bold man. He was protecting his father's sheep. By the time he got up to Goliath, he had already done things in private that nobody knew about that when he stood, and he had to trust God for this, and when he stood to face Goliath, he was standing on a confidence which he earned in the private place that nobody saw what David had already done, but David knew that God can help him do things that he would not be able to do unless God was with him. I wanna tell you today that public things are built on the foundation of private victories. And so God wants to give us victory in our private places. He wants to give us victory over our mouth. Come on, somebody, let's talk real. He wants to give us victory over our mind, over that mindset that's critical and judgmental and harsh and bitter. He wants to get the foulness out of our mouth. Friend, I wanna tell you, we can't come into the prayer room going, praise God, bless God, hallelujah, take authority over the enemy and then have a foul mouth at home. I might just go sit down right now. We're gonna leave, you know. We've gotta get authority in these private places and he's given it to us. We've gotta take authority over these things in our life. Let's, let's not be duplicitous, let's not be double-minded, let's not go down those roads. Let's be exactly who we are all the time. Let's take up the victories in our private places so that when we come to do the work of God or we come to minister in the name of Jesus that we don't feel a sense of false guilt that does not need to be. We're not perfect, but I'm saying we're the same people in private that we are in public. We can overcome the enemy. The path of Christ, honestly, is a place of surrender. It's a place of empowerment. And let's overcome in the private places and in the public spaces. God helps us to do all of it today, amen? Would you stand? Let's pray as we close. I took you a little bit over. You didn't know that until I told you though, but all right, I won't be honest with you. I had a vision picture as I was praying and uh this is for somebody, would you hear this if the Lord is saying this to you? I had a picture of somebody, uh, you, had a, you had a property and a house and a bunch of land, and you had a neighbor to your right and to your left, and this is, this is a figurative, it's a pr- prophetic word from the Lord, and I saw your neighbors take up your, the fence posts and move them in about five or six feet, and then they put them back in the ground, And then you came and you looked at what your neighbor was doing in this vision and you thought, okay, I've got 10 acres, it's not a big deal. And you didn't wanna bother that person and confront them and none of that. But then as the week went by, I had this fast forward picture in my mind where that kept happening. Where your neighbors took another 10 feet and another 20 feet. And before you know it, they took so much land that you only had this postage lot, which we mostly, all of us live on, most of us. You had this really small, you went from 10 acres to 6,000 square feet. And, and, and spiritually, I believe this is what the Holy Spirit would say to you today, that, that you've been minimized and you're living in far less than what you were given and you've tolerated it for far too long. That God has called you to receive and to walk in more for his glory and for his name's sake, And it's time to speak up and reclaim what God has called you to live in. That might be ministry, that might be gifts, that might be family, that might be whatever, but God doesn't want us to tolerate. He wants us to push back and walk in what he says that we're called to walk in. And I wanna tell you today prophetically, push back, pray back, speak back, don't let anyone or anything minimize what God has given to you that you might walk in it and the fullness thereof. And if that's you today, let me pray and just receive that from the Lord. We'll receive that from him. Father, we thank you today for your word. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us to walk in what you've given to us. That would glorify you. It's not for us, we know that. But when we walk in everything you gave to us, that you stood in the baptism waters for us so that we might be cleansed of sin as we put our faith in you. That you were anointed as an example that we too might be empowered by the Spirit and we can receive that overcoming power that we need. And you confronted the devil, and you gained victory. You took back authority, and you gave it to us so that we could continue your mission and ministry. And Lord, if we're living in less, I pray, God, that today you would help us to reclaim what you've given to us, that we would bring the fullness of glory through the fullness of our life to you and to you alone. So come now among us in your healing and your revealing power. Holy Spirit, speak life to us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Speak life to us. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.